I went in, I flashed my credit, said Doug Knight FBI. It's a real ticking clock. They're gonna set up the state police roadblock there. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with you today is me, Jim. Of course. (laughs) Who else would it be, Francie? Well, hopefully no one ever, even though we do have a couple of people every now and again who'll say... God, I wish that Jim Clemente would get rid of the woman. She's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> What's her name? Yeah, they never know it. It's always something different. So I don't think they know who I am. Okay. But I'm here, nonetheless. Who are you? You're supposed to identify yourself. <laughs> I'm Francie Hakes. I'm a former state and federal prosecutor. How nice. Isn't it? And I'm yes. Jim's sidekick. Oh, and I'm your sidekick <laughs> as well. So today, we have a great friend of mine and colleague, Former and current. Douglas Knight, retired FBI. Hey, Doug, how you doing? Good. And the listeners might recognize that name if they actually listened carefully in the Criminal Minds episode that aired on December 5th called Broken Wing. That's right, Jim. And we talked to our listeners specifically about it in the lead up. In fact, it's why I was alone for a few weeks because you were off being, you know, a Hollywood mogul shooting your episode while I had to go out and toil in the field and interview people. Of course. Yeah. It's not mogul. It's writer producer. Okay. <laughs> Same thing. None of that mogul crap. Same thing. Anyway, the point is Douglas Knight, you might hear his name if you watch that episode, Broken Wing, episode 1409 of Criminal Minds. You also might see in episode 1409 of Criminal Minds, someone our listeners will recognize the hint is hashtag Team Jim. Good hint. Good hint. (laughs) So write in, everybody. See if you spot him. All right. So, Doug, we want to talk to you about one of your cases today. But first, we want to know a little bit more about you. Yeah, just Doug Knight. That's not enough information, Jim. So tell us about your career. Where did you start your law enforcement career? Started my police career in 1985 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Now, Fortunately, I have had the pleasure of visiting Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a very nice town, and it's very far to the south, right? Right near the 
what is it called? The Caribbean? No. The Caribbean? <laughs> not, not quite, What's Jim. it called over there? That's how far Jim uh, doesn't get to the south the Mississippi often. Gulf Coast? Okay, the Gulf Coast. All right, there you go. It's almost the Caribbean. Also known as the Redneck Riviera. Oh, please, but it is connected to the Caribbean. Am I not? There you go. It's all just (laughs) same. It's water. How do you know if the Caribbean water (laughs) isn't there in the Gulf Coast? I mean, come on. Excellent point. I don't think Jim's ever been to the Emerald Coast. Doug, I have many times. It's beautiful. Well, that's what the Gulf Coast is called all along the Redneck Riviera, which is my favorite beaches in the world. It's because you've got that white sugar sand and that emerald green water because there is emerald quartz in the sand. And so at the shallowest parts, as you go into the Gulf, it's brilliant emerald green. It's Mm, gorgeous. Interesting. Didn't know that. So- uh, after you were a police officer in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where'd you go next? Well, from the Hattiesburg Police Department, I was recruited into the FBI, and then my first office was Dallas. Wow. So let me just ask you something. Where were you born? <laughs> I was actually born and spent my first 18 years in a town called Soso, Mississippi. And that's spelled S-O-S-O, if that I'm is, not mistaken. That is correct. S-O-S-O. Oh, so-so. I love it. The man from So-So. Yeah, so just give me an idea of how the population of So-So, Mississippi. The population of So-So, Mississippi is approximately 400. Oh, approximately. Four, like 400, not 400,000. 400. <laughs> 400 people. people. So <laughs> everyone knows everyone. Pretty much. And right, everyone's but, business. But yes. I want our listeners to really focus on the fact that Doug is not saying Mississippi. He's no. saying Mississippi. You have to skip a syllable, Jim. I keep telling you this. Doug, I'm so glad you're here because Jim is constantly denigrating Southerners. Oh, or denigrating. maybe it's just me. But either way, I think if <laughs> he denigrates me, it's Southerners. Don't I you? don't think so, yeah. Francie. I'm just giving you back what you give me. <laughs> so, so Mississippi. That's right. <laughs> so, so Mississippi. And how did it get its name? Well, supposedly there was like, well, the first thing there was a post office. Okay, which is good. And this postmaster, when people would go by and they'd ask him how he was doing, he would say, oh, so-so. <laughs> and so when it, when it got a little bit more size on it, time to name the town. It went from three people to seven. They maybe, decided maybe, to name it a seven. town. If it's a big family, maybe even eight people. Okay, well, there you go. Well, that's really cool. What's it like growing up in so-so Mississippi? Uh, it is a rural, poverty-stricken area. Oh. And it is... Um, I mean, the people there are good. They're hardworking, honest people for the mm-hmm. most part. But it is a uh, it's a difficult place, and at the same time, it's uh, a much different world that's insulated from a lot of the other problems that, that mm-hmm. big cities have. You know, it's great. My mom grew up in Parkin, Arkansas, and my people, the Dockeries, are from the Mississippi Delta. So my mom grew up. Uh, they were they were farm people, my mother's people, and they had big, you know, soybeans and wheat and all that. But Parkin, which I think may be no bigger than so-so Mississippi, Parkin, Arkansas, where my mom grew up, is very small and very, you know, agriculture driven and poor, generally speaking. Well, you did damn well going from so-so Mississippi to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And we want to hear all about that. But first, let's start with your case. Where in your career were you when the particular case you have in mind came up? Uh, well, the case that I have in mind is one that really jumped out at me, and I was a relatively new agent. Okay, so you were a new agent in the FBI, just came out of the academy, and you were assigned to the Dallas division. 
Correct. Can you tell us how big the Dallas division is? Maybe 300. I'm not sure really what the numbers so are. So it's almost as big as so-so Mississippi. The FBI office itself has got about as many people as like the entire town of so-so Mississippi. Wow. Because you got agents and staff and all that. Yes. Yeah. So it might have been a little bit of a culture shock going from Major so-so culture. to Dallas. Major culture shock. Okay, great. Well, so when you were in the Dallas division, what unit were you working on? I was on the violent crime squad. Okay. And what is that? What kind of crimes does that squad handle? There's a, a variety of different uh, violent crime violations. For the most part, we work bank robberies and interstate theft. Okay. So this particular case, do you remember what you were doing the day this case came into you? I was about a year into the Dallas division. I'm sitting at my desk and a lot of the other senior agents were, for whatever reason, were not in the office. And my boss came and said, hey, I need you to go to this trucking company to check out a logo on a truck. There's been a child abduction like in Illinois, and they think that it may be a Dallas area trucking company. Okay, so well, that sounds like... That seems very important. Sounds like a serious case yeah. right from the start. So you were a relatively new agent. We call him a first office agent, right? And you kind of have that moniker until you get transferred somewhere else, don't you? No matter how many, how many is, years you're in there. That is correct. So you could be experienced as hell. You could be a cop. How long were you a cop? 13 years. 13-year cop, but still, you're a first office agent. So you were way more experienced than probably a lot of the FBI agents you were working with in Dallas, right? I mean, 13 years as a, as a police officer is a long time. It was a long time. But when you get to Dallas, everything's new. So, you know, you're kind of starting at ground zero. Okay. So now you, you get this uh, request or lead to go check out a trucking company. What do you do first? Well, is uh, around nineteen ninety nine. So you know there wasn't a lot of computers, and then I knew it was time sensitive. But you know, I think initially they thought it was just going to be just a quick little lead, run, look at this trucking company, look at this logo, see if this is the, even like what the a witness is describing. Okay. And so I get in my car and I drive to the trucking company. I How look far at the was it? Uh, it was from the office, maybe a 20 minute drive. Okay. And you're alone in your car or you got a partner with you? I'm, I'm alone in my car. Okay. Well, so well, you roll so, out to the trucking company. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more though, about what information did you have before you rolled up to the trucking company? I knew it was a child, a child abduction. I knew that they were the witness that it saw a truck, a big truck, a tractor trailer with a logo that they thought may be a Dallas area trucking company. So it was a child abduction in Illinois, did you say? Yes. So you get information that a child has been abducted and then some witness has mentioned a tractor trailer with a logo. That was seen in the vicinity of where the abduction was. So you didn't no. have any details that like the no. trucker kidnapped the child. You just no. know it may be important. There was no direct eyewitness account to be able to say that this child was abducted by this truck. Okay. At this time, do you know any of the details? Did, did they I, tell you any of the details about who the kid was, how old the kid was, or anything like I that? I knew it was a seven-year-old child. And at the time, I had a six-year-old child. Mm. And so this is the thing that really jumped out at me because I had a six-year-old son. And this was, I think the child was seven years old. And so it really hit home for boy me. Boy or girl, do you know? It was a boy. Okay. Yeah. All right, so you're driving out there. What do you do when you get there? Well, I drive up, and then, I, and then there's a number of, of these big trucks parked in a lot. I look at it, and then based upon the description that I had about, and I forgot the configuration of the logo, but it looked like, based upon like the oral account of it, that could be it. Okay, now we have to tell our listeners who 
weren't around in that time period or who don't remember that time period, that there were no cell phones around, right? You couldn't just like take a picture and send it back to your boss and send it back to Illinois. So you had to do what? Well, I had to go in and then I had to borrow a telephone and I had to call my boss and say, hey, I think based upon the description that you gave me, this is a possibility. So you went into the trucking company that was the subject of this investigation at this point. That is correct. Okay. And then so I got to do the whole... What did you tell them? What did you tell them when you walked in? I did just like on TV. I went in, I flashed my credit and said, Doug Knight, FBI. (laughs) I love that. Did that feel good? It actually felt very good. Did they all scramble? Uh, there was a lot of confusion and chaos. Then I said, are they a person here in charge of security? I need to speak to that person. Mm. And, and as it turns out, they was. And so I identified myself to that person. And I said, look, there's a, been a child abduction, a truck that is possibly one of your trucks was seen in this vicinity. Wow, you gave them that much information. I did. Wow. Well, because at some point they're going to have to tell them like, who, that yes. truck, who might be driving that truck, yes. I assume, right? And, and, and See, the, Jim, I could have been a trained investigator. Yeah, but you also could have given away the farm <laughs> on that one, right? What if you were talking to the guy who was driving that truck? Because it's not too hard to get from Illinois to Dallas, Texas. Mm, yeah, true. But th- this is this is all in real time. I mean, the abduction was in like a couple of hours okay. of when I was standing there. So it was in real time. All right. All right. So he probably didn't make it all the way to Dallas by probably that point. Probably did not. Okay. So... What happened next? Well, with the help of the security director, we started going through to see if they had any deliveries. I knew the name of the town where it was at. And so he had a, a number of people because there's a, you, you walk in and there's a office area and there's probably 12 people that are dispatchers or what have you that's in charge of manipulating the trucks. Okay. Uh, so they we, we go through and they pull in like all their bills are laid and like the like loads are delivered to right shipping orders, right? Shipping orders, and as it turned out, they did have a delivery in that town that was delivered, like you know, that day. Really? Yes. Okay, so that's the Illinois town from which the child was taken. Yes, yes. and it's starting to sound like that witness, that eyewitness. Even though eyewitnesses are the worst, that eyewitness may have done a really good job in identifying this truck. Yeah, but Jim. It could be a complete red herring. Just because there's a tractor trailer in the vicinity of the job abduction doesn't mean that guy but is guilty. At least. Jim, you're so judgy. What are you talking about? You already think it's the truck driver. I can tell. Actually, I didn't say anything about the truck driver. <laughs> what I said was the eyewitness actually did a good job identifying the truck. I'm just reading Goofball. your mind. Just read your mind a little. Uh huh. It's a scary place and in she there. She wonders why anyway. I have issues with <clears throat> her. Anyway. Anyway, so. So <clears throat> the uh, truck driver said, well, you know, we're experimenting with a thing called GPS. Really? <laughs> and wow. so they had put like a, just a, I had a, a limited number of GPS devices they had put on their trucks to experiment with helping them track their loads. Really? This happened to be one of the trucks that was equipped wow. with Wow. Oh, that's a nice so coincidence. So would that mean that it actually would take? a picture of where the truck was all along the time? Is there some kind of recording of where it is, or do you have to actually live see where the truck is right now? Well, as it turns out, in the setting in that room we were at, they had a computer system that was capable of tracking and knowing exactly where it was and going back in real time. Really? And so then I had to call back to get some more specific information, and the GPS was right precisely put the truck in exactly where the child was at at the precise time that the child was at. So this little lead of yours is heating up, isn't it? It's starting to get pretty hot. Yeah. 
With all the options out there, how can you decide what meal delivery service is best for you? Going to the grocery store and prepping your meals for the week can be difficult, especially when you have a busy schedule or a hectic school night with the kids. So why don't you simplify your day and try Home Chef? Home Chef offers 16 different delicious meal options each week, from steak to chicken, seafood to vegetarian. You can mix and match all of those based on your own preferences. Once you join, it's as simple as selecting your meals and customizing your delivery dates. Your box will arrive at your doorstep each week with recipe cards and fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients. And then voila, you have a home-cooked meal in about 30 minutes. There are even five-minute lunch options. I love Home Chef. I love getting the recipe cards. I love the notebook that I can put the recipe cards in to keep so I can make the meals on my own later if I want. It's so easy going online and picking your meals every week. So go to homechef.com slash best case and get $30 off your first order. That's homechef.com slash best case for $30 off your first order. Homechef.com slash best case. Hey, have you guys heard of Quip, the electric toothbrush designed to make brushing better? It is the buzzy gift on everyone's list this year. It looks like a big ticket tech gift, but a stocking stuffer price. They have a color to suit everyone on your list. There are four sleek metallic handles, two poppy plastics, a red brush that gives back, and a statement-making black brush. You can give the gift of a healthy smile and better dental visits. The people on your list will think of you every morning and every night. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes that's accepted by the American Dental Association, and it has thousands of verified five-star reviews. I love Quip. I love my Quip toothbrush. It's so easy to travel with, and the sleek copper handle makes me happy every time I brush. That's why they have all of those verified five-star reviews from people like me. Quip looks like a big ticket tech gift, and it starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash best case right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your giftee that you're getting the gift pack. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash best case. So how long did you stay at the trucking company to get the information? Did Uh you stay until they gave you this GPS data? Can you answer the question? Yes. But this time I'm probably somewhere around 30 to 45 minutes at the trucking company. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are you staying there now? I'm there. All right. So you call back to your boss. What do you tell him? I say, hey, I've got a GPS system on a truck that can put the truck at the time and place of the abduction. I think this may be our truck. Okay, so you've identified the truck that the witness has said was in the vicinity. That's good because, A, this truck driver then could be a witness to who took this kid, or, B, this guy could be a good suspect. Correct. Don't know at this time, but we know that the truck driver or this truck was at the scene in in the immediate vicinity when this child was abducted. Okay, so... Were you able to get the identity of this truck driver at that point? When I initiated the phone call to my boss, the trucking company was getting me all the information on the truck driver. So they were looking at who it was? Yes. All right. And they was able to get me like all the driver's license information. I mean, the date of birth, all, all the identifiers for this particular truck driver. Okay. And then I assume you conveyed that information to your boss? I did. And then about this time, and I don't remember... What other division was involved in, if it was Springfield or wherever. But anyway, at this point, he referred me to the case agent on the ground at the other end. Because this was a live 
child abduction. Now, I worked child abductions myself for many years while I was in the behavioral analysis unit. And it's something that it's all hands on deck. You have to act really quickly because of the kids who are abducted and killed, 44% are killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, and 99% in the first 24 hours. So it's deadly critical to get the information out there as soon as possible so that you can hopefully rescue this child before it's way too late. It's a real ticking clock. It's starting to get, it's starting to heat up. I mean, I'm starting to get really, really anxious about it. My son keeps going through my mind because you're about the same age and then you're, you're struggling with all these emotions and then you have to dismiss all of that. But you know, it keeps popping up back, you know, what if, what if this was my child? Right. Well, that's the thing you say, you have to dismiss it, but you really can't. I mean, you have to sort of compartmentalize it so you can do your job, but you're still a human being. And I'm sure not just you're thinking of your own son, but any person, any agent working this kind of case knows the statistics that Jim's talking about and understands the danger if that child has been, in fact, abducted by a stranger is in. And that's got to weigh on you every minute. That is correct. And then so with the, the help of the trucking company, we started to try to plot like what the route was going to be of this truck. We got the GPS. We know what highway is on. We know the direction he's going. So, yeah. yeah. So the GPS not only told you where he was, but it should tell you where he is right now. Yes. But, I mean, he's moving. I mean, he's on the, on the interstate and he's moving. He's mobile. All right. Which yeah. is why the FBI exists, right? Yes. I mean, to get people who can travel in interstate commerce, who are committing crimes. That's why we have the FBI. Yes. Well, at this point, you've talked to the case agent. So do you have any more details about the child and how someone knew they were kidnapped? And there was no eyewitness, I think you said, to the actual kidnapping. So what details at this point did you have about the child and the kidnapping? At this point, the best I remember is the mother was there with the child and then she was distracted just for a couple of minutes. Outside or in their home? No, no, they were in uh, in a playground area. Ah. And so for just a couple of minutes, the mother was distracted and suddenly the child was gone. Wow. And so that's it. She turns around or whatever and, the, and her just, child the is just gone. missing. It's gone. Oh, so she calls the police. Experience. The police respond. They start doing like a missing person report. They start canvassing the area. Somebody has to say, well, you know, I noticed this big truck that was kind of parked by the playground that seemed kind of weird. That doesn't usually see big trucks in this particular area. It was a residential neighborhood, the best I remember. Got it. And so that's how it got up come to be an item of interest. Right. And then about the time we identified the, the interstate, the route of travel and all of that, then the highway patrol got a call that a child had been like left on the side of the road and somebody had picked it up. And so he had dumped this child out, seven years old, naked on the side of the interstate. Oh, geez. And so that amps things up, you know, considerably. So now there's no question about it. This is the guy. See, Francie, even your erroneous conclusions about my statements were wrong. Well, Jim, uh, it just happens all the time that you're wrong. And so I have to to make sure. I want to be certain. Oh, that's so funny. But so you guys had GPS data. So he's rolling down the same highway that you're now getting reports that the same child has been left. Yes. Alive, I assume you're saying. Yes, the child is alive. And then like, you know, and then he is he's able to talk. And so now there's some lapse of time here, like as far as at this point, there's some some hours have went by. I'm not really sure how many hours it went by, but coordinating with a case agent. And then about this time, I get the he was he was nearing Kansas. So they put me on the so I get hooked up with like the Kansas Highway Patrol and I start coordinating. And then I did a just a wild guess of 
because the, the Kansas Highway Patrol said they're going to need like you know somewhere around an hour to hour and a half to set up to adequately do this takedown. Right. And so, so I'm you're pl- trying to project where he would be right in an hour, and they're going to set up the state police roadblock there. Yes. And so then I had to go back, and I'm having to do math, and I'm having to work with the with the trucking company to find out what the route is, what the what his rate of speed is. We're trying to anticipate whether or not there's a truck stop anywhere in that area that he may be stopping at. And then we got to a point where we felt pretty confident that uh, we knew exactly where he was going to get to, like one of the uh, choke points that the Kansas City Highway Patrol had recommended doing. And so you you feel like you can the Kansas State Highway Patrol can get ahead of him, in other words. Yes. And so anyway, so I'm coordinating with the case agent, my boss, and then the Kansas Highway Patrol, I mean, in real time, all back and forth, because there's no... We can't text each other. We can't like get on a cell phone. I mean, this is all hardline telephone communications. Right. And then someone's obviously communicating with the patrol officers in their vehicles through their police radios. Yes. So you've got effectively a phone tree happening here. Yes. And so anyway, I set it up. I coordinate it. And then about within minutes of the highway patrol getting set up and said, hey, we're ready to go. I mean, they spot the truck. They arrest the truck driver. And it was just clean and simple. And the fact that the child was recovered alive, I mean, he had been sexually assaulted and traumatized, but he was alive. And I, I felt that was a tremendous victory. So this guy was arrested. Was he, did he put up a fight? Did he try to run? Did, was no. he just taken down overwhelming force? No. I mean, I, I don't remember all the details of the, of the arrest. I mean, they, they set up a roadblock. They arrested him on the spot. Initially, it was like a case of mistaken identity. Or, you know, you got the wrong guy. That's and what he so, said. That's what that's what he said. So he said, you got the wrong guy. How do they know they had the right guy? They based it, right, on the information you were providing from right. the security officer, right? Right. And the case agent by this time would have had some sort of, like, you know, had the AUSA in the loop to be able to get, like, arrest warrants and that sort of thing. So the case Because have- as I'll remind our listeners, FBI agents need prosecutors to make arrests. Jim. Um, Francie? You're so confused. <laughs> Actually, any human being can make an arrest. Oh, I'm not talking without about that an kind AUSA. Of you know what I mean. We do use assistant United States attorneys <laughs> when we want to, but we don't have to use them. We certainly don't want to use them all the time because they're so difficult Jim, to I deal don't know with. What AUSAs you worked with, anyway, Doug? <laughs> back to the story. So the guy is arrested he's captured the child has been recovered do you have any any sense of what the literal physical distance was from where the child was recovered to where he was eventually arrested i mean was that a couple hours or 3 hours worth of driving or was it 6 hours are you asking for where the child was left yeah to dumped on the side well, of the road about, like for, i'm asking for, for, for sort for of the, time reference so how the child was was left by the side of the road, and then this guy got to Kansas, right? So yeah. was he left in Illinois? Was he in Kansas, the child? He would have been, I'm not sure of the distance, but I would say he was at least 100 miles from the abduction point. So he dumped the child by the side of the road and kept yeah. on going? Yes. So the child was within 100 miles, or the trucker was arrested within 100 miles? The child was dropped out probably at least 100 miles from where he was abducted. Okay. And then by the time we coordinated the arrest of the truck, that was probably approaching probably another hundred miles. Okay. So this just really points out the amazingly critical information that you got, because if they didn't know it was this trucker, they wouldn't be looking down the highway for this truck or following GPS. It would have been very, very difficult, very difficult 
to recover this child at all, much well, less alive. Jim, and I want to ask you as the profiler in the room, this to me is, I mean, this is remarkable. I, I don't know that I've heard of very many cases like this where you have a stranger abduction, sexual abuse, and then a roadside dump. I mean, it just seems like a desperate, desperate thing for an offender to do. Sort of, I mean, super high risk. It seems it's very high risk, and it seems extremely impulsive. There's no way this offender, this truck driver, could have known this kid was going to be available and vulnerable. So he must have just decided either to go hunting with his truck or he happened to drive through that neighborhood because of the delivery that he had. And he decided he saw the kid and he decided I'm going to wait for an opportunity and take him. Well, this is a, this is a true sex offender. I mean, this is someone who either was thinking about it and hunting, like you say, or just happened on a park and thought, oh, hunting ground, there'll be a child here and waited for his opportunity for the mother to be distracted. But Gosh, talk about a series of events that had to happen for him to successfully snatch that child, put him in his truck and take off with no one seeing him or the child. It's crazy. It's a very difficult thing to pull off. So he got lucky there. But where he didn't get lucky was that Doug Knight was on the case. Well, that's right. But it makes me wonder, and I'm going to ask Doug this, it makes me wonder whether this guy had prior offenses. Now, of course, as you and I both know, he may have had prior offenses and was never caught. Right. But this doesn't this seems very confident to me. This seems like someone who has done this before or something similar. I don't know. It's very impulsive. So it could be just that he was, you know, under the influence or stressed out or he's been thinking about this for a long long time and just happened to see a kid and said, "I want that one." I don't remember if he had any prior offenses. I can't remember about that. I was confused about the fact that the child was released and then like, you know, and it was either naked or very close to, to, to being nude. And it made me think at the time that maybe he got the child out of the truck and was going to kill him. And for whatever reason, he decided just to walk away. That, that was my thought. And I don't remember. I wasn't there. I did not participate in the interview of the trucker. So I don't know what if he had any explanation for this. Yeah, but I, was I would thinking, think, though, that if he was going to kill the child, he would have done it in the in the safety and security of his truck as and not out in the public because uh, to me when you do see fatal events when people bring a victim to another place it's usually a place that they have more privacy and control and that's where they do it so i think he may have a heard because you know a lot of those truckers you know they have these cb radios they may have a police scanner and truckers talk to each other. And if they saw a bunch of police presence building up in different areas, they may have been all buzzing about it. And he may have panicked and got rid of the kids. So- well, and you're absolutely right about that, Jim. When, when, my fam- when I was young, when I was a kid, my family, we took our family vacations and car trips. And we would drive all over the country to visit my mom's and my dad's family. And one of the places we would go is Park in Arkansas to see my mother's family. And so my parents had a CB radio. And a handle and the whole nine yards. Right. And we got to know all the lingo that the truckers use. But yeah, alerting uh, fellow truckers to Smokey Bear set up somewhere is and a very would, common occurrence. Smokey Bear would be... That'd be police. It would be state That's police, right. It right. would be the police. And so I think it's really, it is an interesting thought to wonder whether or not he could have been tipped off. The other thing, 
Jim, that you're so right about if he was going to kill the child, you'd think he would kill him in the cab. Those trucks are like little houses. I mean, some of them have little, you know, the beds in the back and the truckers will pull off for the rest stops. And they have, they're really kitted out. Some of these trucks have been for many years. And so he would have felt very comfortable there. It would have felt like his home. So you you think if his intention would have been to kill that he might've done it. Right. In the truck. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Doug, so this child is safely been returned to his parents, I assume, at this point? Yes. Well, he's he's been recovered. He's en route to his parents. I don't know exactly the logistical. But eventually he was returned he, to his he parents. He was going to be re- reunited with his parents. And the offender is arrested. What happened to him? Uh, I saw somebody sent me a newspaper article later. I mean, he was convicted. And some somewhere in a warehouse somewhere, I have that, that newspaper clipping somewhere. Okay. Uh, I just want to say, like, the Kansas Highway Patrol were fantastic to work with. I mean, those guys were very, very attentive. They were very responsive. And I do not remember the, the name of the person I was talking to with the Kansas City Highway Patrol. But, man, they were professional, and they were great to work with. And I can imagine the case agent was probably pretty thankful. The case agent was happy. I mean, I was kind of alone by myself at this trucking company, but I'm sure at some point there was high fives all around. Yeah. Well, that's just, I mean, such a great lesson that some tiny little lead or tip that sounds uh, unimportant. Oh, somebody saw a truck logo that might've been in the area. Turns out to be the critical thing to catching this dangerous sex offender. I mean, that's, that's incredible until you took it seriously. I did. And I think at the time that they thought it was just going to be like another one of the many leads you run down on something like, you know, you run down a hundred leads that are, that are, are dead in. And I think this, Probably as a new agent, when my boss assigned it to me, he was probably thinking that this was not going to be anything more than like just eliminating like a a possibility. Right. So, Doug, we have to ask you, this case, when you were a first year FBI agent, a newbie on the squad, this case, was it a best case or a worst case? A little bit of both. I mean, it was terrible circumstances, but as far as like a case and the satisfaction of feeling like I'd made an accomplishment, it was the best case. Well, you rescued a child, Doug. I mean, yeah, that was the rewarding thing about it. The fact that we had caught that the offender and we had rescued the child. The child was re- recovered and returned to his parents. And then hopefully he's lived a, a very ha- happy and productive life thereafter. I certainly hope so, too. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you got that case and that you actually took it seriously and didn't just blow it off because so many times you can't anticipate whether this is going to be the thing that breaks the case. But in this particular case, that kid's life was saved because of this. And other kids down the road were saved from having to suffer that because this guy was locked up. Because if if he had just literally driven off into the sunset, you know he would have done it again. So the boy from So-So, Mississippi, he did good in this one. He did good. Congratulations, Doug. No, thank you. And thank you for coming and talking to us on Best Case, Worst Case. Till next time, signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, 
Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.